The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We're continuing our study uh, of John this morning. We are in the 8th chapter, and we're actually going to finish the 8th chapter today, 16 verses, all right? I know that's a lot of verses, but, you know, this is narrative, and this is a lot of stuff that we've covered in the past. You know, Yeshua keeps confronting them with the same things, and they just don't get it, you know? Um, so we started this series 16 months ago, so I think we made pretty good progress. We're finishing up chapter 8 today. Now, you remember the context of chapter 7 and 8 is the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. They are in the temple. The Lord has been carrying on conversations with several different groups and individuals uh, in this celebration. You know, things come up and he, he answers that and then there's different groups he's addressing. So, over and over though, we've seen in this chapter that Yeshua has been attacked uh, by these Jewish leaders. They keep coming at him. They, keep, they don't like what he's saying. And what we're looking at this morning is probably one of the most heated exchanges between Yeshua and the unbelieving Jews, all right, that you're going to find recorded in the Gospel of John. Yeshua is responding to their claim in John 8.33 where they say, we are Abraham's descendants, by pointing out that while they may be genealogical descendants of Abraham, he's telling them that your spiritual father is the devil. So the Jews adamantly respond, well, Abraham is our father in verse 39. And then they say, we have one father, God, in verse 41. But both times, Yeshua points out how their claims are disproven by their actions. He tells these religious leaders who are continuing you know, to say that they represent God and they're speaking for God, He tells them very clearly, you are of your father, the devil. That's pretty strong language. Okay? I mean, that's not seeker-sensitive language. He's not trying to cater to this crowd. He's not trying to make these religious leaders feel good. He's just giving them the truth. And you know, people, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it's strong like this. You know, if you look at Yeshua's language throughout the Gospels, it's uniformly negative towards the leaders. All right? It just is. He calls them hypocrites in the Gospels. He calls them blind men in Matthew 23. He calls them children of hell in 23. Look what he says in 23-27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! That's not a nice thing to say to people. You're preaching the Gospel. You're supposed to be nice. You're supposed to say flowery stuff, right? For you are like whitewashed tombs. You're like a bunch of tombs, all right? You look good on the outside, he says. You appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. You guys stink, is basically what he's saying. You're just sepulcher full of putrid stuff. You look good on the outside, but inside you are a mess. Now listen, that's not a little, there's not a lot of political correctness in that. There's not a lot of tolerance there. He just spoke the truth. That was it. This is true about them. He's addressing them with the truth. People go crazy about, you know, you talk like this to someone today. But this is the truth about them. He goes on now in verse 45 to say, But because I speak the truth, 
You don't believe me. In other words, he's telling him, it's precisely because I'm telling you the truth that your son's the devil who's a liar and who rejects my words. That's You're his children. Now, let me ask you something. Why don't they believe in him? He says, you do not believe in me. Why don't they believe in him? Did they not have enough information? Did they lack evidence? Well, you know, Yeshua had been performing miracles for three years. For people who knew the Tanakh, they would recognize that these prophecies in the Tanakh are being fulfilled in Him, that He truly was the Messiah. So why don't they believe in Him? Do what? They can't. They can't believe in Him. This is what we've been learning through this Gospel. Let's go back to chapter 6 because 6 is an important chapter on the sovereignty of God and explains these things. 6.35-37 Yeshua said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. Now, what we have to see here, coming to Him, believing in Him are synonymous. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ and vice versa. And that's important to understand this. Alright? Yeshua is addressing the crowd's unbelief in 36. He says, But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet you do not believe. So He's addressing their unbelief. Even though they've seen Him. Even though they've seen Him perform miracles. Even though they have heard His teaching, they don't believe Him. And then He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You guys don't believe, but you know what? The ones the Father gives me, they will believe in me. And so you're not believing is just demonstration that you don't belong to God. The ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. Now that's, that's weird today. That's strange today because today it's all about the individual. It's all about you. You know, whatever you want to do, God's right there to support you and help you out. If you want to believe, you can. But the Bible teaches it's only those whom the Father enables to believe that come to Him in faith. These are the all of the people who the Father gives to the Son. It's the elect. It's those who are given as love gifts. Verse 65, and He was saying, For this reason I've said to you, no one can come to Me unless it has been granted by the Father. So obviously the Father didn't grant that everybody came. And again, this is a crowd of unbelievers that He's addressing, and this is what He's telling them. You guys can't come. You're not coming. You don't believe. You can't. Unless the Father has given it. Over and over in this chapter, He talks about the divine initiative. God has to give you the faith. And that's the point He wants to get across. Twice Yeshua says, all the Father gives me will Come to me. The ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It's only those whom the Father enables that have faith. These are the all of the people whom the Father gives to the Son as love gifts. Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, not man's choice. They didn't believe because it was necessary for the Father to draw them first. 644. 
They didn't believe because they hadn't been given to the Son, 637. They didn't believe because they had to be taught by God, 645. They didn't believe because they had to be chosen by Yeshua, 670. The Bible says the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. Man has to have a new birth before he can understand the things of God. And people, it's no different today. And that's why when you share with people, they're just, you know, they're bored or they're, they get offended by what you have to say and they just don't want to believe that. But when you share the gospel with someone that God has called, it's all of a sudden it's exciting in there. Wow, this is great. This is the greatest news I've ever heard. It goes on in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why don't you believe me? Now, I don't see Yeshua here as asking whether anyone thinks he's guilty of sin. That's not the point of this. Because clearly they did think he was guilty of sin. Back in 5.18, they thought he was guilty of breaking the Sabbath, because he healed a man. And they thought he was guilty of blasphemy, because he made himself equal with God. So, I think what he's saying here in this context, convicts me of sin, seems to refer to false testimony. In other words, Which one of you want to convict me that my testimony is false, that I'm not telling the truth? See, Satan lies, but Yeshua speaks the truth. And he invites these Jewish leaders to refute his statements, to refute his teaching, to prove him to be false. And of course, they can't do that. He says, who is of God hears the words of God? He keeps saying this over and over. Listen, if you're of God, you hear God's words. So people who don't hear God's words, it's because they're not of God. For this reason, you don't hear them. Because you're not a God. They can't respond because they don't belong to God. It's as simple as that. Only those who have been called of God hear God. The natural man does not trust. They don't believe in the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to them. So Yeshua tells them, you are not of God. Now, these are the Jewish leaders, okay? These are the guys who represent God. And He said, you're not a God. And they respond, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? See, the Jews can't refute his argument, so they resort to insulting him. Okay? This is the way most debates go. Okay? I mean, when you get into debate with somebody, it starts on an intellectual level. You say, well, I believe this. You know, and they'll say, well, I believe this. And okay, now you have two differences of opinion. All right, and normally the second step goes to emotion. You know, you start getting emotional, you know, voices raise, uh, you get a little cranked up. And I don't think there's really anything wrong with that. I think you should be passionate about what you believe. And I think you can get emotional without being rude. But very, very often, you know, it goes beyond that. And emotion gets irrational. Because you get crazy about you know, your point of view. They're not seeing my point of view, so you get all upset about it. The third level is verbal abuse. You can't get your point across, so you get angry and you just start throwing out insults at the person. Well, you're an idiot. Well, you don't understand. Unless, and listen, there's an there's a exception to this. If you're on Facebook, all you have to do is disagree and step one and the next thing, you're an idiot, you know, we'll come back at you, okay? Because... We, you know, we lose all social graces when we're on the internet because they can't see you and can't reach out and slap you because that's the fourth step in a debate. Okay? Once you get angry, once you start the insults, then you can start, you know, it, it can come to physical, uh, you know, people throwing punches and stuff. 
Let me say personally, I don't think debates are useful. Unless a person who disagrees with you intellectually wants to know more about your position, you're just wasting your time if you get in an argument with them. All right, because they're trying to prove their position, you're trying to prove your, your position, nobody's listening to each other, you're just going back and forth, yelling at each other. And it gets emotional, and then you start, you know, calling each other names, and what if you, nothing has gotten done, okay? There are times when people go, well, you believe that? Why do you believe that? You know, and there, there's something, you got to know the difference. You got to know when to back down. I, uh, I got a call from a man last week who calls me periodically to tell me what an idiot I am. I don't really need him. I, I'm, I already know that, all right? But, uh, but he, likes to, he likes to remind me. So he calls me, and he tells me, you know, and he's commenting on my message, uh, resurrection when? Well, I think you got the timing of the resurrection wrong. I'm, really? Okay. What do you, you know, what do you think? Well, then he starts rattling off. So wait, wait, wait. Give me, give me a verse. You know, you, you said Yeshua said. Where's the verse at? So he says, okay, it's, it's Luke uh, 20, 37, where Yeshua said, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed at the burning bush. So he said, see, Yeshua is saying the dead are raised. Then he went in to give me an English language, an English lesson about the word are. You know, the dead are raised. And I said, well, you know that uh, Paul said later, there's about to be a resurrection. That's, you know, 30 years later, Paul saying there's about to be. It hadn't happened yet. And he's, you know, just arguing. He keeps going back to English, you know. And I said, you know, uh, Yeshua was talking to Mary and Martha, and they said, we know he'll rise again. At the end of the age. That's the end of the Jewish age. I said, that's, that's off 30, 40 years still. Goes back to English again. And I said to him, wait a second. I said, you're trying to build a doctrine on the English language. I said, the, in the Greek, that word's not even there. And so you know what his response to that is? Oh, now you're telling me I have to know Greek to get saved. I said, who's talking about salvation here? You know, now my voice is raising and I'm getting... Because he's throwing out... You know, stupid things. I didn't say anything about getting saved. I'm just saying he's trying to build a doctrine on the English. And I said, you have to go back to the Greek, look at what the Greek... And he, that just blew his mind to think that you'd have to go and look at the original language to what was really said. It was just too much for him. And so, you know, it just went out of control from there. You know, know, and that's what people do. You know, when you give them an argument, then they, they don't like that argument. They just escalate. And, you know, throw up something stupid like, yeah, you got to know the Greek to get saved. No one said anything about that. You know, where are you pulling this stuff from? So, you know, I just don't think debates are all that helpful. Again, if someone wants to sit down and talk about it, you have differences of opinion, that's awesome. You know, that's how we should do. But we have to know when to fold them, okay? <laughs> you got to know when it's time to stop. Because if, you know, you're, if things are escalating to the point of name calling, you're not doing anybody any favors. You're not helping anybody out. Well, these Jews, they can't prove anything that Yeshua is saying is false. So they just go to step three and they just start attacking him. You're a Samaritan. And you're like, wow, where'd that come from? Okay. That's not very nice. <laughs> I mean, to call a Jew a Samaritan, this is about as dirty as they can get, all right? This is the only record we have in the Gospels of them calling him a Samaritan. Now, you know the Jews despised Samaritans. They were half-breeds who had intermarried with Gentiles six centuries ago, and now they followed their own version of the Torah. By calling him a Samaritan, they're accusing him of being a heretic. Because the Samaritans didn't believe the right things. 
They're accusing him of being a pagan and a violator of the covenant. A Samaritan in their eyes was worse than a Gentile. It's the worst insult they can think of. All right, it's just the worst thing. Calling you, it was kind of a like a racial slur, really, with the innuendo that I think in also in this is that your father. We don't even know your father. You don't even know who your father is. You're half breed. See, they accuse Yeshua of being illegitimate, the son of a non-Jew, a Gentile. And so they say, and they want to add to that, you're demon-possessed too, by the way. Okay, You're not just a Samaritan, but you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. See, remember we talked about this last time, but they believed, the Jews later on, believed that Mary had an affair with a Roman soldier, and Yeshua was illegitimate child. And so that's why they're saying, you're a Samaritan. You're not even a real Jew. Now, there's a possibility here of another view that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, Contextually, uh, the Aramaic word translated here as Samaritan, the Aramaic word means chief of demons. Now, that's just a strange coincidence, you know, if if it doesn't mean anything. So, what they're saying here is... You're just connected with the demons. You, you know, you belong with the chief of demons. He's part of that. You're possessed. And, and if that's true, it fits with the context um, of the religious leaders constantly telling him his power was, came from a supernatural evil source. Over and over they said that. All right? So they add to it, you're a Samaritan, no matter how they're using that term, if they're using it as a real Samaritan or you're, a chief, you know, you're involved with the chief of demons. They said, and you have a demon. This is a constant accusation throughout the Gospels. Mark 3.22, it says, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, Beelzebub is just another name for Satan. So they saw him as not only possessed by demons, but you're possessed by Satan too. Now, let me ask you a question. What is a demon? Jeff, be quiet. What is a demon? Can you tell me What a demon is, where do they come from? I mean, demons are big in Christianity. Some churches, that's all they talk about is demons and demon possession and, you know, the devil and all this stuff. So, who are they and where do they come from? Anybody? Democrats. (laughs) Oh, that's wrong, Gary. All right, the Dead Sea Scrolls say that demons are bastard spirits. Now, the biblical text, read in its ancient context, tells us that demons are disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim. All right? Now, the Nephilim are the products of the Watchers. The sons of God left heaven, Genesis 6. They mated with women. So you got gods mating with women, so the child is a a half-demon, or half-god, half-human being, and these Nephilim were giants, the Bible says. Alright, so they're the sons. These Nephilim are the sons. Now, when a Nephilim dies, his body's physical, his body goes, but because he's half-god, his spirit goes on and roams around as a demon. Alright? So demons are second generation divine beings. We get a lot of this from first Enoch, 
First Enoch says, Now the giants, those are the Nephilim, who are produced from the spirits and flesh, in other words, man and God, shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies. And when the Nephilim die, that's where the evil spirit comes from. Because they are born from men and from the holy watchers in their beginning and primal origin. So they're, the Nephilim come from half man, half God. And so they're this hybrid being. Goes on to say, they shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits they shall be called. So that's where demons come from. Enoch goes on to say, and the spirits of the giants, again, that's the Nephilim. Now, watch what it says about these demons. The spirits of the giants, that's the demons. They afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle. Work destruction on the earth. Now, this is what Yeshua is being accused of being possessed by. A demon. Alright? Destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst. And cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women. Because they have proceeded from them. And at the death of the giants, spirits will go out and shall destroy without incurring judgment. So when the Nephilim die, their spirits go on. This is where demons came from. Now this, Enoch, is Second Temple literature. And Second Temple literature is the context of the New Testament. The New Testament writers were very familiar with this. They often quote these sources. So this is what Jews of the Second Temple period believe. Demons came from the Nephilim. They're vicious, vile creatures. And these Jewish leaders are accusing Yeshua of being possessed by a demon. Now think about that. I mean, here's Yeshua and they're saying, you're possessed by this evil demon who caused all this trouble. You know, for, the, for these Jews not to recognize Yeshua as the Son of God may be excusable because, I mean, He appeared like an ordinary man. But I think it's just perverse to see all the benevolent works that Yeshua did. Healing feeding people, raising the dead, and declare those to be the works of demons. You're demon-possessed! What have I done wrong? What evil has He done? I mean, you see, they're just being slanderous. That's all they're doing. These Jews who proudly claim to be the keepers of the Ten Commandments were flagrantly breaking the Ninth Commandment about bearing false witness. They continually made untrue and vile accusations against Yeshua. Well, Yeshua's response to them. What do you do when you're called a Samaritan and possessed by a demon? He says, I don't have a demon. (laughs) That's pretty calm. You know, he doesn't seem to be like someone with a demon would act. You know, if you read through scriptures and see how the demons act, you know, they're breaking chains, they're torturing, you know, they're just evil things. And Yeshua just calmly responds, I don't have a demon. Here's what Peter said. And while being reviled, speaking of Christ, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. People, I hate to quit teaching and go to meddling here, but this is how a Christian responds to persecution and accusation. All right? 
This is how a Christian responds to slander. This is how a Christian responds to personal attacks. We are called to be like Yeshua. Right? We're called to act like Yeshua. Yeshua's attacked and He says, oh, I don't have a demon. He doesn't you know, start calling names. He doesn't get all upset. He just responds, no, I don't have a demon. Yeshua imitates the Father. And so should we because we're image bearers. We bear the image of God. And when people look at us, they're supposed to see God. And so this is how God responds. Should I move on? Okay. (laughs) I'll keep going. (laughs) He says, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Well, they dishonor Him by saying He has a demon and by rejecting Him as the Son of God. And in doing so, they dishonor the Father because the Father sent Him. This goes back to 5.23. This this verse is a very important verse. 5.23 says, So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Son and the Father receive the same honor because they are one. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So any cult, any group, any schism or ism that rejects Christ rejects God. Simple as that. What about Jews? If they reject Christ, they reject God. They don't know God. They don't have God. They're not in a relationship with God. That's what Yeshua is telling these people. You guys think you're the leaders of this. Even today, Jews who say, well, we honor the Father. Not unless you honor the Son, you don't. Not at all. You can't possibly be the children of God and dishonor the Son. You can't do it. He said, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. You know, to say that Christ doesn't seek His own glory is really an understatement. In His incarnation, He came. That was an act of humility in the incarnation. Look at Philippians 2, 6-8 through says, Who although He existed in the form of God. He's God. He always existed that way. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Everybody didn't have to know, hey, look at me, I'm God. But He emptied Himself. That's where the doctrine of the kenosis comes from. Taking the form of a bond-serving, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In His humiliation, He gave up His glory. And He walked on earth as a man. He says, I don't seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. So Yeshua says, in effect, I don't need to defend myself because God the Father seeks my glory. In other words, if you dishonor me instead of glorifying me, you're actually setting yourself against God. If you oppose me, you oppose the one who is committed to honoring me. He says, there is one who seeks and judges. Now that's an interesting statement because what he's saying essentially is there's one person who seeks my glory and who judges the rebellious. And that person is the Father in Heaven. He says, you've gotten to the point where you are blaspheming Me, you're calling Me half-breed, you're demonizing Me, and you're in great danger of God's judgment because God honors Me. You know, I find it interesting that rather than striking dead on the spot these arrogant Jewish leaders who have recognized Yeshua, should have recognized Yeshua as their Messiah, 
But they just, you know, no matter what he demonstrates, no matter what miracle he does, no matter how he teaches, no matter what he does, they just hate him. They're arrogant. They just want to attack. And in spite of all that, what Yeshua does next is offer them the gift of eternal life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Guys, all you got to do is keep my word. The if here and in verse 52 are both third class conditional sentences that mean potential action. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. Keeping Yeshua's word is synonymous with believing in him. All right? So if anyone believes in me, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. He's saying to them, listen guys, if you believe what I say about myself, and what I say about my Father, and our great work of salvation, you'll never die. Now the death in view here is not physical death. We understand that, right? It's eternal death. This is the same thing Yeshua said in 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Believers in Yeshua pass from death to life. Eternal life, eternal life by definition, cannot end. You got that? It can end. Believers will never die spiritually. I read a story last week about a German pastor who was asked the question, are you afraid of death? And he says, which death do you mean? He says, Jesus my Savior said, He that believeth in me hath eternal life. And he also said, He that believeth in me shall not see death. Why would I be afraid of something I'll never see? Christians have been given the promise of eternal life. So yeah, I mean, we fear death, but Yeshua said we'll never die. You say, well, we'll die physically. Yeah, but that's a graduation day. I mean, that's great. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Do you understand that? To leave this physical realm and go into the presence of the Lord where you're in, his, in this realm in a whole different situation without this body, ah, it's, it's incredible. But we act like, nah, I don't know if I really want to take that, that offer. In verse 52, he said, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Oh, now, see, we, we said it before, but now we're sure, all right? Why? Abraham died. The prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never die? See, they say, well, okay, now we're sure of what we accused you of before. It's been confirmed. Because you're promising that people believe in you will never die. And that's just crazy. We know you have a demon. As we've seen over and over in the Gospels, he's talking spiritual truth, spiritual realities. They're talking on the physical level. They never get beyond that physical level. They're basically saying, who do you think you are? They reason that Abraham heard the Word of God, Abraham obeyed the Word of God, but Abraham died. The prophets heard and obeyed the Word of God, and they died. So they're basically saying, who do you think you are? This is beyond comprehension. These are the great heroes of Judaism, and they all died. Only a demon-possessed lunatic would say that he's got power over death. They say, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now the Jews' question here in the Greek expects a negative answer. 
You're not greater than our father Abraham who died. No, you're certainly not. But yes, he is. And that's what he's trying to tell them. He is greater than Abraham, which means he is greater than Judaism. The one promised by the Scriptures is here. 54, Yeshua answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Now the if here is another third class conditional sentence which meant potential action. You keep claiming God is your God and you dishonor Him by dishonoring me. Now we need to keep in mind that there was plenty of evidence that Yeshua who was who He claimed to be. That God honored Him. Plenty of evidence at that. But yet, they just kept rejecting it all because they were blind. Verse 55, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. See, if Yeshua were to seek to appease his opponents, which he never does, he'd say that you're right, I don't know the Father. But then he says, I'd be a liar like you. Now again, that, that's not a personal attack. That's just the truth. You guys are liars. And I'm just laying it out to you. 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So you claim to be children of Abraham. You don't act like Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Notice he says your father Abraham. Not our father Abraham. I think this is part of Yeshua's strategy of distancing himself He distanced himself in this gospel from the Jews, from the law, from the temple, and even from Abraham. It's a clear break from the old covenant. Your father. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. Now let me ask you something. How did Abraham see Christ's day? By his day, I think he means his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his second coming. It's all encompassed. It's the Christ event. It's all together. Abraham rejoiced to see it. It's interesting, if you grab a commentary on this, uh, commentators are all over the map on what this means. What vision, what promise, what event is he referring to? Bottom line is, we don't know. You know, what, what exactly event is he pointing to here? Hall Harris says this, the use of past tense would seem to refer to something that occurred during the patriarch's lifetime. And I agree with that. We'll talk about that a little more in a second. But he's saying, Abraham, past tense, rejoiced. When Abraham was alive, he rejoiced to see my day. Harris goes on to say, Genesis Rabbah 44.25 states that Rabbi Akiba, in a debate with Rabbi Johann ben Zachariah, held that Abraham had been shown not this world only, but the world to come. This would include the days of Messiah. So the rabbis argued that God showed Abraham this. Uh, Harris goes on, more realistically, I would suggest that Genesis 22 lies behind Jesus' words. This passage, known to the rabbis as Akita, binding, tells of Abraham finding the ram, which will replace the son Isaac on the altar of sacrifice, an occasion of certain rejoicing. And a lot of, a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars go to that. Okay, They go to Genesis 22 because they say that on Mount Moriah, God told Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise, and he provided a ram as a substitute. You know the story. 
God told him to go up there and kill your son. He took his son and guess what? He found a ram, you know, stuck in the thicket and he sacrificed the ram. God showed Abraham how his son would be a sacrifice for sins. But also how he'd be raised from the dead. So many see it that way. Now some see, see the most likely possibility of Genesis 12. And you could go to any of these, you know, passages, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, you know, the prediction that God's going to bless the world through Abraham. Through you, I'm going to bless the world. So that's a prediction, obviously, of Christ. Now, some say that Yeshua is claiming that the promise God made to Abraham finds its fulfillment in his own ministry. And that's what it's talking about. Okay, he found it. The fulfillment of this promise is in me and all I do. And that's obviously what he's talking about. But there's some scholars who propose that John 8.56 means Abraham was already in paradise seeing Yeshua in his ministry. In other words, Abraham's looking down seeing what Christ's doing. Oh, I'm rejoicing. But again, that ignores the past tense. Abraham in his lifetime rejoiced to see his day. So we don't know for sure what promise or event this refers to in Abraham's life. But let me share with you a view that I like. Okay? And I'm going to ask you to be a Berean. You've got to study this out. You've got to you know, do some research and dig into it and see what you think. We'll start with Psalm 19. Okay? The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the ends of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, and His circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, most people will look at this psalm, and they see David as saying that we can see the hand of God in physical creation. All right? In other words, you look at physical creation, and you're standing by the Grand Canyon, and you're awed by what you see, or you're standing on a beach at the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, and you're awed by this huge body of water and the power of the waves and just the majesty. Or let's say you're in the Alps and you see these magnificent peaks, and you're awed by that. And because we see this awesome thing, we know that God is real. That's how most people would interpret this. I don't think so. All right? I think you can stand at that Grand Canyon, as many pagans do, and say, evolution is amazing. You can stand at that great body of water and say, the Big Bang is incredible. Look what the Big Bang did. I don't think those... Now, I think as a believer, yes, they, those things cause awe, and you say, our God is so good, because we know that God made them. But pagans don't see that. Now, the Hebrew word for expanse here in this text... He says, their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Expanse here is rakia in the Hebrew. In Genesis 1, we see that the stars are in the expanse. Same word. So God took the stars and he put them in the expanse, the rakia. I think that what David is referring to here is the zodiac. The word zodiac means path. It means way. The zodiac is the stages of the sun's path through the heavens in 12 months. Notice verse 3. He says, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense when you read verse 2 and it says, Day to day pours forth speech. And then he says, There is no speech. Well, is the pouring forth speech or is there no speech? Which one is it? 
It's funny because the King James actually gets this right. All right, The King James puts it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. See the difference there? They just added the word where and it makes perfect sense. The Geneva Bible puts it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Then the Geneva Bible has a footnote that says, The heavens are a schoolmaster to all nations, no matter how barbarous. All right? I think that Psalms 19 is referring to what some have called the gospel in the stars. And I think what they're saying is God's glory is seen in the zodiac as it tells the plan of redemption. All right, in other words, if you go through the zodiac, you begin and go through there, that in the stars are laid out the plan of redemption. So what is it that utters or pours forth speech here? Which voice goes out to the world? Well, whatever it is, it's showing the glory of God. That's the whole purpose of this, to show the glory of God. So is the glory of God seen in the existence of stars? Well, Christians would say, yeah, God made those. But scientists would say, no, that's the result of the Big Bang. So that doesn't do anything. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, it's the work of Christ that shows the glory of God more than anything else. So the glory of God is not just in the stars, but the work of Christ in redemption. And if the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens are saying something about Christ. There's something in those heavens that declares Christ. Now we find in Genesis that Abraham has no children, but God promised him many offspring, right? Genesis 13, 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, your descendants can also be numbered. So Yahweh promises Abraham multiple descendants. But in Genesis 15, there's another incident. He says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, (laughs) I think that's cool. All right, here's Abraham and God. And God says, Come on outside. I want to show you something. Okay, let's step out of the tent here. All right, so they step outside the tent, and he says, now look toward the heavens. All right, so there's no light pollution here. All right, perfect, clear sky. It's just as beautiful. You can see it all. He says, count the stars if you're able to count them. Now, most people say, okay, he's telling Abraham, one, two, three, you know, count, see how many stars are up there. No. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in Yahweh, And it reckoned him to him as righteousness. So he says, count the stars, and you know Abraham believes him, and he's counted righteous. Now, I think to understand this, we really have to understand what he's saying in count the stars. The word count here is the Hebrew word safar, which can mean intensively to recount, that is to celebrate, to show, to speak, to talk. It comes from a root meaning a book 
or a scroll. Now in the Septuagint, the word count is erifmeo, which can mean to reckon up. The meaning of arithmo is much wider than count and can mean enumerate or reckon. So what Yahweh said to Abraham was not count the stars, see how many you can count, but to recount or tell the stars. In other words, there's a story in the stars. And Yahweh wanted Abraham to take note of that story. There was something about the story in the stars that Abraham believed. He believed that story, and then he was counted as righteous because he believed that story. He believed Yahweh and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, what did Abraham believe? Was it that he'd have a bunch of kids? You're going to have a bunch of kids. Oh, I believe that. Okay, you're righteous. Or was it the message of redemption that was told in the constellations? Paul tells us that Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Galatians 3.8 The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel, Abraham had the gospel preached to him, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. How was the gospel preached to Abraham? Was it the gospel in the stars when God took him outside his tent and says, look up there? Whatever, whatever it was that Abraham believed, it caused him to be counted as righteous. I think that Yahweh showed Abraham that one of his descendants would redeem man from the curse and would satisfy the justice of God. Now, Abraham believed that God would provide a Redeemer to deal with man's sin. And when Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis 15.5, so shall your descendants be, he was saying the Messiah would be Abram's offspring. Was that what Abraham was to tell in the stars? I think that Paul explains this in Galatians 3.16. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, remember, the promises here are, I think, all tied into redemption. He does not say in seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul is clarifying that Yahweh told Abraham his seed, singular, not the Hebrew plural, which would translate seeds. It's possible that Abraham thought his seed, Isaac, was to be the promised Messiah. Remember, Abraham had received a very specific promise that he would have a son at a particular time. And then in Genesis 22, we also read of Yahweh's command to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. What did Abraham do when Yahweh told him to sacrifice his son? God told Abraham, you're going to have a child. All the promises are going to come through your child. All right. Now the child is born. Now take your son and kill it. I'd be saying, but then how do the promises get fulfilled? How does any of this work out if I kill him? He doesn't argue. He doesn't question. He doesn't do any of that. Because I think Abraham understood that Messiah had to be sacrificed and then would be resurrected. If so, did he believe his son was the sacrifice? See, I think, I think Abraham understood the Gospel but I think he, there was some confusion on his part. He thought Isaac was going to be the Messiah. He didn't know of the coming Christ future. He viewed it as 
But see, he seemed to understand what was part of the gospel. Look at Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. See, that's the promise. Through Isaac, your descendants are going to be, you know, blessed. Well, if I kill them, how are they blessed? He considered that God is able to raise people from the dead. Where did he get that from? From which he also received him back in a type. Abraham believed that Yahweh would raise the Messiah, and perhaps he believed that Isaac was that Messiah, but he understood the Messiah had to die and be raised. He understood the gospel. Genesis 22.5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. Abraham seemed to believe that they were both coming back. But he knew he was going up there to sacrifice his son. He may have believed that Isaac was the Messiah who was going to be resurrected. He seems to have known the gospel. And I want to contend that he saw this gospel, God reminded him of this gospel, in the stars. Now, let's talk about this briefly for a minute. All right, this is so deep, okay? You've got to, you got to do some research here. But if the gospel was told in the constellations, how were men supposed to know the meaning of the constellations? I mean... Let's take Virgo, for instance. You look up in the sky and you see these stars and you go, that looks like a virgin. How many of you ever said that? Nobody ever said that, okay? Because it's just a bunch of stars. That are, oh, look at Leo the lion. Hey, how do you get a lion out of that? You know, how do you, how do you see the, I even know, I can, you can point to them and I still don't see them, okay, in some of them. So how do they get it? I think the meaning of these constellations, God created the constellations, then He taught man. Starting with Adam. Look up there. Here's the plan of redemption. All right, In the stars. You had to be taught it. You had to be taught what those things meant. Oh look, there's a lion. It's like reading a book. It's something you had to be taught. So God put the constellations up there. He taught men what they meant. Here's the names of this. The Bible says He named the stars. You know that the constellations themselves have been known from antiquity. And the names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages. I mean, you can go to all different cultures and you point to a certain star and they go, well, that's this star, and they know the name of it in their language. For installations, the constellation Virgo, meaning virgin, is referred to as Bethula in Hebrew, Parthenos in Greek, Kenya in Hindi, all mean virgin. They all look at that constellation and they say, that's Virgo. That's the Virgin. This indicates a prior knowledge of the names of the stars in the constellations prior to the confusion of the language at the Tower of Babel. And I think the knowledge may have come down through Adam to Noah. These guys live forever. Can you imagine how many people you could teach if you lived, you know, 900 years? Huh? I mean, really, you know, the people keep coming, you're training them, and they're living for a long time, so they're teaching each other. And I think God taught them, and they're teaching each other the stars and the constellation. They've been handed down. 
And so when God takes Abraham and he shows him the stars, remember, God got tired of all the people who weren't worshiping and serving him, all the nations, so he gave up on the nations. In chapter 11, the Tower of Babel confuses him. He gives up on He gives them other gods and says, these other gods will be your gods. I'm done with you. And the next thing he does in chapter 12 is choose Abraham. So he calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, look at the constellation. Let's review this stuff, Abraham. And see, a lot of people say God called Abraham as a pagan. All right? But the pseudepigrapha says Abraham knew God from three years old, which I think is interesting, you know? Uh, that's uh, information that I think is probably true. God called this man. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. God called him said, I'm starting over. I'm going to start a new nation. I'm going to use you, Abraham, and we're going to start all over. But these names have been handed down and these people have been taught. And there's something in that constellation. And it's fascinating as you go through and begin at the one and go all through the whole, it's the plan of redemption. In the stars. So he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham believed the gospel, and therefore he was declared righteous. But these Jews who claim to be children of Abraham, they have Messiah standing right in front of them, and they can't see him. They're blind. They can't understand the gospel. They look at the stars. They've been taught that story. They don't get it. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? How old was Yeshua at this time? I heard 30, I heard 34. Anybody else? (laughs) He was around 33 years old. Okay, how do we know that? Luke told us. All right, Luke told us he started his ministry at 30. So this is about three years into his ministry. So guess what? He's about 33. All right, so why do they say you're not yet 50 years old? Well, It's really funny because, you know, the commentators say, oh, this, this just shows how, how the Lord aged prematurely because of all the stress in his life. And I'm like, no, I, they're not saying, you look like you're 50. That's not what they're saying. They're just throwing out a round number. You're not even 50 yet. How do you know? I mean, come on. They didn't have to be close. It, it was 2,000 years apart, all right? So they say that you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Now, Yeshua didn't say that he saw Abraham, even though he did see Abraham. When did Yeshua see Abraham? Genesis 18. Okay? Yeshua and two angels showed up, had dinner with Abraham. So he did see him. All right? But what he said that was Abraham saw his day, meaning the Christ event, the first coming, the cross, the resurrection, the second coming. In some of the best manuscripts, the earlier, better manuscripts, the text reads, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and has he seen thee? Which makes more sense. You know, that's the idea. Or has he has seen thee? Questioning. You know, you're not even fifty years old. He saw you. How did, how did he see you? Well, we know how he saw him. Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was born, <laughs> I am. All right, we've been over this a lot of times in this gospel, so hopefully you understand this by now. But this is the third use of I am, ego, ami, without the predicate nominative, indicating the divine name of Yahweh. When Yeshua says, I am, 
This is the clearest, the most forthright claim in the Gospel that Yeshua is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I Am of Exodus 3.14. His claim is that He existed before Abraham who had lived approximately 2,000 years earlier. But He's not just claiming pre-existence here. If He was, He would have said, before Abraham was, I was. He's claiming more than pre-existence. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That's Exodus 3.14. That's when God said to Moses, I am who I am. Ehiah asher ehiah. In the Hebrew. So by saying I am, he's not only claiming pre-existence, he's claiming deity. The meaning here is before Abraham came into being, I eternally was, and now I am, and I will ever continue to be. A German scholar who'd studied in detail Yeshua's claim here to be the I Am said this. This is Jesus' boldest declaration. It means, where I am, there is God. Where I am, there God lives. Speaks, calls, asks, acts, decides, love, chooses, forgives, rejects, hardens, suffers, dies. Nothing bolder can be said or even imagined than for Jesus to say, I am, before Abraham came to be. It's just a powerful... You know, we read over that and we miss it because we're so separated. We don't get what he's saying. These Jews understood Exodus, okay? They knew God's claim to be I am. And, and so they knew when Yeshua said, well, how can you understand Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And they said, well, before Abraham was... I am. And they're like, oh, this just drives them mad, okay? This is as crazy. I mean, this is blasphemy of the highest order. The penalty of blasphemy like this is death. So what do they do? They pick up stones and they try to kill him. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Yeshua hit himself and went out of the temple. So as they turn, they grab stones, they turn to throw it at him. He's gone. Where is he? I think this is miraculous, people. I don't think this was a, you know, he, he's ducking down under the crowds, you know, trying to hide and sneak out. I think it's just further proof of his divinity right before their eyes. And, you know, Yeshua repeatedly escaped arrest until the hour appointed by the Father. And over and over they tried to kill him, and it says it wasn't his time. It wasn't his hour. And just as that's true for Yeshua, that's true for every one of us. If it's not your time, if it's not your hour, you're not going, okay? You'll go when the time and the hour appointed by the Father comes. Now, stoning him without a trial was an accepted form of punishment when they defied the Mosaic law or the traditions of the elders. When they blasphemed like this, it was, a, you know, remember with Stephen, they picked up stones right away and they killed him. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a trial. They didn't do anything. They just said, well, you, you stepped over the line, we can kill you. All right, so that's what they felt here. Yeshua, you're claiming to be the I am. You're done. We're just going to kill you. That's the end of it. Well, Yeshua hit himself, and he went out of the temple. I think there's something symbolic going on here, okay? This has been happening in the temple. This conversation has been going on, and now Yeshua leaves the temple grounds. Yeshua is the glory of God. The glory of God is departing the temple. Now, 
If you're familiar with Ezekiel chapter 11, that's when the glory of God left the temple, all right? The glory of God moves and just leaves the temple because they had forsaken God, so God says, I'm done. He left the temple. It was an empty shell. There was nothing. It was that way when Yeshua showed up. Yeshua was the glory of God. He came back to the temple. They didn't want the glory of God, so here we see the glory of God again departing. And because He departs the temple 40 years later, this temple's done. Shut down forever and always. I don't care what dispensational says. I don't care what anybody says. That temple's not coming back. It's done. It is gone. All right? Why? Because Yeshua said, I am the temple. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. We are God's dwelling place. Now, He doesn't need a building. He dwells in us. As I said last time, we're sacred space. We're holy ground. God lives in us. He dwells in us. So there doesn't need to be some building that they had to go to. That was Old Covenant. And that's over with, okay? Before, in the Old Covenant, you wanted to visit God, you took an animal, and you went there. Why? Because you said, God, I'm bringing you a present because I hope you don't kill me when I come to see you. Because I'm coming in your space, and I'm not too holy, and you're awful holy, and I hope I don't get killed coming to visit you. I just want to fellowship a little. Those days are gone, people. The sacrifice has been paid and we are righteous, we are holy as God is holy now because we share the holiness of Christ. Well, this was 2,000 years ago, but you know, all men today face the same choice these Jewish leaders faced. Either Yeshua is a blasphemer or He's God. There's no in-between. You know, people today say, oh, He's a good man. No, He can't be a good man. Good men don't claim to be God. Okay? They just don't do that. All right? They're crazy if they claim to be God, and they're not God. Well, Yeshua was God, so you've got to make your choice. He's either a blasphemer and you've got nothing to do with him, or he's God. And people, I think, for those of us who have known and trusted him, he's the God of glory. There's no doubt. And to come to know him is such an incredible thing. And I want us to see here the sovereignty of God that plays into all this. Believers, we're called to share the gospel with people. But it's not about, you know, how good we are at doing that or what tricks we use or how we sneak up on people to get them to, you know, unsuspectingly drop the gospel on them. You know, I've read books where, you know, people say, well, if you do an invitation in this way, you know, you can get people down to the altar and they won't know what's happening. What is this trickery, you know? God is sovereign, people. And so we share the gospel knowing that if God opens a man's heart, they're going to grasp it. It's going to be the most exciting thing in the world. And if God doesn't open their heart, maybe it's just He's not opening at that time. Maybe later at some point, He will open their hearts. So we as His people faithfully share the Word of God with those we come in contact with, knowing that when God calls them, a transformation takes place. And and I'll tell you, to be involved as a human agent of that, It's one of the most exciting things you'll ever be involved in, to watch people go from darkness to light by the power of God. And the gospel is that power. We have it. we got to share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. Father, I thank you that we can sit down and watch our Lord Yeshua in action, dealing with these religious leaders. We hear his speech. We see his reactions. We watch him, Lord, as he walked through this earth. Lord, I pray You'd help us to realize that we are called to imitate You in all that You do. It's a high calling, Lord, but I know we have the power to do it. 
Help us to get beyond our selfishness and our desire only to glorify you, to honor you, Father, by the lives we live. Thank you for your grace. Amen.